Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Farms Vice Agribusiness Podcast, where we talk about how to grow your agribusiness through efficiencies and lifting your productivity. I'm your host, Jack Creswell, and on this week's episode, we hit into number 58 as we dive into another fantastic value-adding farm based near Tullamore, Central West, New South Wales. It's called Outback Lamb. If you haven't heard of it, look it up. It's a great business, and it's led by the key driver, Fiona Aviat. Just around the corner from the Farms of Our Studio, actually, which we both only just learned. How funny is that? A huge fan of these sort of variating into existing farming frameworks and how that can both benefit the consumer and also the farmer at the start of the supply chain. They both come out with a win with new products for the consumer and increased revenue for the farmer by supplying the high quality product. Let's dive in and see how it all began for Fiona and the team. Fiona, how are you going? I'm well, thanks, Jack. How are you? Really good. Great to have you on and introducing what you get up to within agriculture. But before we get down to your agribusiness, can you just give us a bit of an overview on what your connection is and what your background is before we get into it? Yep, so um, I grew up in the Tullamore Peak Hill district um, and went to primary school in Tullamore. We're fifth generation farmers on the you know same or similar country that um, my ancestors settled on in 1886. Um, we, I went away to boarding school, um, did a year at Hawkesbury Ag doing um, systems ag and yep. then transferred to Orange and did um, a Bachelor of Business in Agcom there. 
uh, had a couple of years overseas, did the, you know, bit of a stint. I went for three months um, and ended up staying nearly four years <laughs> and, uh, and then came back to the farm. I'm one of four um, and my sister Felicity, who's younger than me, has ended up on the farm and myself, um, I have a sister who lives in Orange and a brother in Dubbo. Great stuff. And before, if anyone doesn't know where Tullamore is, it's Central West, New South Wales, isn't it? Just around the corner. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Bang. Um, it's all really pretty traditional uh, mixed farming country with, um, you know, around that 500 mil rainfall and uh, not no irrigation or anything. Yeah. It's all dry land. Yeah, excellent. So you went overseas. What did you go overseas for? Because I did a very similar thing. Thought I'd go there for six months and nearly four years later. Yeah, well, that's, I, so uh, we grew up with horses coming yep. from like that big hill area. My background was um, trotting, but we're always been tied up in picnic racing and that sort of thing. And um, when I was at Hawkesbury Ag, I did a bit of work at the racetrack there for a trainer. And when I wanted to go overseas, um, I organised to transport horses out of Melbourne into Asia and then um, was going to do a stint in Ireland um, with uh, at Coolmore Stud, just doing yearling prep, you know, mucking out stables and really like bottom level kind of stuff. And then I just um, fell, absolutely fell in love with Ireland and the experience. I think it's a bit like when kids here go up north, it's that first time you're making, you know, fair money and you're there's a heap of young people around and the just it was a time when um, historically like they say now the Celtic tiger roared that was um, they'd come out of a period of massive unemployment um, and um, and just you know were booming and just great fun and there's so many opportunities and one thing led to another and I just used it as a base and then traveled around a lot I spent a bit of time in the Middle East and traveled through Europe and I'd come back and do yearlings or foaling or you know different things like that and just felt I could have stayed there forever <laughs> but got to 26 years of age and I was like oh my god everything I own's in a rucksack I've got to get back to the farm so I did <laughs> yeah that's it you get sick of living out of a bag don't you for sure yeah yeah it was I don't know what it is like you just have to I loved it but there's nothing quite like putting down roots and um and certainly doing something you love and I was always you know if I could combine horses and um and farming uh that's what we'll definitely do. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think like as growing up in agriculture, you always have that tie back, whether you want to come back or you don't, you still feel connected to agriculture as a whole, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. They're very much a connection. And and we grew up, um, I was always much more interested in being outdoors than, um, than indoors. Uh, it was, you know, it was very hands-on. And my brother, um, he was home, as well and just he'd done a stinted orange jag and just kind of was as he was growing up realized it probably wasn't for him and um and my other sister felicity she went to gatton so we're all interested in agriculture and you know just putting down those those roots close by so um it was just kind of a natural i never i didn't grow up thinking i'd be on the farm but um i always knew i'd be involved in agriculture yeah, beautiful. And now let's get down to agribusiness. Great to see a bit of your background. Outback Lamb, this is your venture. 
when did it start? Yes. And most importantly, how did it start? What was behind it to kick you in the butt to get it so going? It was, a, <clears throat> it was a really slow burn. I think we thought about it for quite some time, but the catalyst for me was um, it was kind of like farmers not being able to, getting such a bad rap in the media, to be honest, um, in terms of it always, every time I opened the paper or turned on the news, it felt like we were being um, shown as these environmental vandals or cruelty to animals. It was all negative about mulesing and different, you know, it just didn't matter what it was. We we're just getting a bit of a flogging and um, environmental. And as you would know, and as I know, that's absolutely not the case. Like it's just, you know, farmers are so uh, concerned about everything and, and prioritise their animals. And there's always exceptions, but just the, you know, 99% are just so amazing. And so I was really thinking, it's such a, um, such a, we have to start telling our own story and um, not letting that void be filled by people who had a different agenda, like um, maybe Peter or the, you know, vegans or the greenies or all that sort of thing, who were telling this story that what I was reading in the news and that just never seemed to really represent us and what we were trying to do. And um we just started, it was a crazy time to try to value add to outback to lamb because it was the drought and there were short supply and the values, you know, were going up anyway. But um, I could see we we're just a little bit jack of the whole, um, we've been growing, expanding the farm. We'd been um, really concentrating on our genetics, pushing livestock and um, and looking at ways to, you know, stay viable, I guess, and, and really try to succeed. And it was, everyone likes to wax lyrical about the farm lifestyle, but the, the novelty was wearing off a little bit. It was, we were just working so hard all the time. And um, it was, and then it was the drought, of course. And I remember that in the Telegraph was interviewing this lady who had moved all the potty lambs into a house and they, you know, were doing a fundraiser to get them new carpet because the carpet had been ruined and I just thought it's just so not representative of ag and what actual farmers do and who lives <laughs> how we live and what we're trying to achieve so we started out back lamb and I just thought well we'll do it through social media and we started off doing boxed lamb with a little farm shop and um and then move very quickly into wholesale um and then I was lucky enough to participate in a accelerator program called Farmers to Founders with Sarah Nolet and yep. um, Christine Pitt. And uh, so we focused very much then on, we stepped away from the whole bodies and really concentrated on doing the lamb sausage rolls and lamb pies as a value add. And that's where we're at today with Outback Lamb. Fantastic to hear. And how did you actually come up with Outback Lamb? Did you dwell on the name or you just went, just <clears throat> went with it? I know I did. Um, we wanted to, I'd been talking to some friends in Hong Kong who were really keen to get some Australian lamb, you know, into uh, their business. And because they were, um, had a little shop and they were selling uh, anything Australian was just going um, for ridiculous money. And I, you know, being incredibly naive as you are when you start something like that, I was just like, well, surely I can get a contract kill somewhere and box on up and send it over. <laughs> Clearly, as no doubt you're aware, it's much harder than that. But so we kind of, I always started with a view to doing export. And yep. um, 
I didn't want it to be something that would disappear into consolidated revenue. It had to have an entity of its own. And, um, and I sort of, without really doing a business plan as such, I, I had it this innate sense that it needed to have its own identity and we had to be branded and we really had to market ourselves in order to um, tell the story well and target an audience and a, and a consumer that would be interested in the product. Yeah, and I think you really, you can start to connect with the consumer itself when you're going direct, can't you? Whether you're doing wholesale or direct to customer. Yeah, and it, it did surprise, that was the, one of the biggest surprises we'd had. So in the beginning, if you'd asked me, you know, often in marketing stuff, they ask, who's your avatar? You know, who's your customer and that type of thing. And I would have absolutely said, you know, uh, Bondi, Eastern Suburbs, foodie who's right, wants to be more connected to the source of their food and um, all that sort of thing. But what we found really early on was easily 80% of our stuff was within a 300 kilometre radius of what we were doing. We were selling heaps into Dubbo, heaps into locally, um, condo parks and orange. Like that's where the majority of our product was going. Yep. Do you see that's because consumers want to support local rather than the Bondi hippie wanting to know where his food's coming from? I think it is. I, I've felt unbelievably supported by community and customers because I think they love the concept of what we're doing. And I, I'm pretty sure most farmers, and, and again, I, I'm sure you're not the same. We all feel innately that we're on the cusp of some real changes in ag and we do, I'm not quite sure where it's going, but I know that it's not going to be the same as 10 years ago. And um, so I was sort of casting around for that new thing and I wanted to be running, you know, less sheep, but making more money and yep. kind of really being able to look after the land a lot better and just not, I always felt like um, we run merinos and crossbreds and the crossies get the sort of premium paddocks, you know, the merinos tag along behind. Yep. And it's, I always feel like they're so highly productive, particularly the merinos. They're cutting so much wool. They're having, you know, multiple births and, and they're a bit like a, um, a big dairy cow. Like they're only two mouthfuls away from metabolic collapse. <laughs> like there's so much management that goes into running a high performance animal. And I, I'm very conscious of the fact that we live in a 500 mil rainfall area that can be highly productive when the rain comes, but isn't otherwise. And yep. I've just found myself questioning our farming model and what we were trying to achieve and just really wanting to tweak that in terms of, you know, for the next generation, I guess, and saying, well, you know, I have to farm like it's a 500 mil rainfall and that we're in a warming climate and that we're doing things differently and how might I do that? And outback land sort of feels, um, is part of that picture. Yeah, of course. And it, I suppose it's bringing it down to a manageable and controllable level for your farming enterprise there, whoever's working on that within the family. Do you feel like you've gained a lot more control on what you're doing when you started to value add? um so a lot more control over who's like, buying the product if, or yeah if you're reducing your numbers but you're also increasing the profits that you can or generating the revenue from very added products do you think yeah. that like managing smaller mobs of sheep and allowing that soil to regenerate itself allows you to focus on what the real core <clears throat> focus is well 
I mean, it's all, let's just say it's all in that heavily experimental phase. But I think I find with our crossbreds that they are such, they eat as much as a small bullock. Like they really, they pump out a heap of lambs. There's no question about it. Like you're usually getting, depending on the season, between that 140 and 160%. And we were always targeting the big heavy export market and um, growing grain and putting it into them. And, you know, we were successful at what we did in terms of finances, but um, just in terms of our quality of life and the workload and what we were achieving, I was questioning that and the longevity of it, like how long that model was going to be sustainable. and so part of us getting the pro breed, um, those smaller Highlander ewes is, is a bit of an experiment. We've got 340 or 50 of them and um, they'll be highly productive. They'll have a lot of lambs, but we'll really um, use them to target the domestic market and, you know, put off, instead of putting off a 60 kilo lamb, really try to put off something early at, you know, 40 kilos and, um, uh, and maybe not carry them as long and, and not have that, heavy um just that high production like it's i i just don't know if it really is suitable for what i'm trying to do yes yeah, suppose suppose what you're trying to do is look for are you trying to look for a more rounded sort of lamb um that can go to market yeah so for the outback lamb sausage rolls we um obviously we want to um do get more weight into them. So yep. we'll often use the Merino lambs are quite good for that as well. And our better um, crossbred lambs are going into like Burke Street Butchery and that, you know, they're a more yep. visual, um, smaller, you know, that sort of 22 to 26 kilo sort of weight dressed and more for a domestic market. And that's what we'll do with the, um, the pro breed ones that they will meet a, a specific market. Whereas uh, definitely to do the sausage rolls. And we want a lot of meat and, you know, maybe we'll go into Dorcas because it'll be, um, but it's about, uh, yeah, just doing, it's a whole whole picture, I guess, is what we're looking at. So how can we incorporate, we did some early work with um, uh, Farm Lab, uh, looking at carbon measuring, we, you know, how, just what we might change and, and moving away from those really big gutsy first cross use um is, is our first step because they are you know quite hungry all the time <laughs> yeah definitely they really are and trying to keep that up to them to the standard so you can get that dress weight 22 to 26 range and you sure. can finish them like it, you, with grain like that's a you know we can all it's like we can all grow a you know crop competition winning crop like you long fellow and you clean it right up and you like we can all finish sheep and the prices have been excellent. Like there's no doubt about that. But in terms of what we want to do as producers, like I really want to grow grass-fed lambs and I want to have strong pastures. I want to have the most nutritious lamb we can produce as well. That's yep. something that I'd like to grow my eat myself um, rather than having, I, I see Australia following time and time again, an American model where we're pushing towards a heavily industrialised system. We all use... Um, you know, feedlots or um, drought lots or containment feeding really and really well to save pastures. There's there's definitely roles for it, like don't get me wrong, but yep. 
I don't want to go right down that American path because we've got so much more to offer Australia and New Zealand in terms of um, doing more that regen style of production and and hopefully getting a premium by doing it, but it really trying to explain that to the customer. Yeah, I think that's the way that you've got to sort of differentiate where you tell your own story. It all encompasses, like Woolworths isn't saying what sort of soil they're lamb or beef was grown on are they it's that's up to you to no. try tell that story and re really connect to the consumer and the land and we have to remember like we're growing um food for an increasing world population like all the figures that i see most of us have to that are landholders already and producing food have to increase what we're doing by about 45 percent by 2050 in order to um make be making the product to feed that growing world population so it's you know uh, what i'm doing isn't the right the right way for everyone does that make sense like it's not yeah, um totally. we do we do have to to feed people um and whether that's with alternative proteins whether that's with like um combinations of um of um, alternative proteins and meat or looking at lots of different things about people growing more intensively like mushrooms and all that sort of stuff a bit closer to the city again even though they you know sold all that dairy farm for housing <laughs> it's all you know there'll be lots and lots of changes and I don't really know where what the path is but it's um this is the path we're sort of choosing for ourselves yep well it sounds like a great path that you got yourself on and you're only really just at the beginning of what's about to happen. The bit of a change in what consumers want. And it's pretty important for us as farmers to listen to that as well. A hundred percent. And it's, it's funny because we've got Merinos like, so yep. um, uh, non-mules is a big thing in the Merino industry. And it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what any other farmer thinks that's like, you know, I always say that somewhere in Alaska, there's a couple of baby seal clubbers going, you know, geez, that was a terrible choice we made, if you, you know, back in the 80s, because they, I'm sure they were like us, they were like, look, you don't understand, we manage our environment, we know what we're doing, we don't kill all the seals, it's, you know, really manageable, blah, blah, blah. And to them, it wasn't that terrible. Um, but at the end of the day, the consumers um completely dictated what, where that industry ended up because um you know you just couldn't buy a fern now i don't think and <laughs> yeah. lived in alaska and yeah, well, I, it's yeah, go keep going. it's just so we really have to understand that it is a consumer market like we're growing wool to sell and yeah. it's we have to grow the kind of wool that people think they want to buy and consumer isn't always right but you, it doesn't matter so we're not mules now, but it's, you know, taken us a while to get there. And this will be our, our next clip will be our fifth clip of non mules. And I hate saying that a lot of the time because it makes me sound like I'm anti mulesing and I'm not anti mulesing, but I understand very clearly, I think that the market will demand that in a very short amount of time. And we've got the technology and the, so many people are working towards the genetics to get there. So we might as well just sort of get on board. Yeah, absolutely. I think the early adopters are rewarded with that risk that they take early on that could literally be another episode just seeing what the consumer tastes are in aussie products uh, aussie farming products but let's get into what your supply chain like your production looks like how many steps does it take until it's all boxed up are you doing anything on farm <clears throat> no i don't do any on farm so we um process um either at ningan or cowra depending yep. on um 
where like what our um, kill is that week for. Um, so you're doing a uh, weekly like kill? The butchers. Uh, we usually, when we're busy, we're doing weekly. We're doing fortnightly yeah. at the moment. So it just kind of just depends on the numbers. Um, but yeah, so we do, we process and then it all goes back into Dubbo to Burke Street and they break down the carcasses and stuff for me. Uh, we've got markets for shanks and ribs that go into food service and restaurant and that kind of thing, pubs. And, um, and then we literally just um, dice or mince the rest of it. And yeah. it's all going. We did for a while, we used to pull the um, saddles out for food service in Sydney, but we stopped with COVID last time and didn't really okay. rebuild that yeah. market. Um, and then we either bake so that it goes to condo to the bakery there or else um we go to at, at the moment i'm doing a collaboration with a pastry chef in sydney called christopher t and um he's quite renowned in that pastry sort of area for uh he started black star pastry quite a few years ago which is a bit of a chain now and he sold that and now he has another business called this is us and they do a lot of the baking for Harris Farm. He does muffins and crumpets and all that sort of stuff. And um, he, I'm collaborating with him to do sausage rolls that to go into a retail market and also into food service, um, like some bigger um, buyers. And that's, we've got a launch scheduled for that in early September at Fine Food Australia. Yeah. And um, so that's really, that's been an exciting collaboration. I really look forward to getting the product into retail markets. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. You're really leaving no punches unthrown there, getting into the likes of Harris Farm Markets and also working with what the end product did, was with the pastry chef. That's a pretty cool thing. Do you think that... He's, he's really cool. Like he's so passionate about... Um, the providence of food and um you know where it comes from he uses all the single origin flour out of um from around north star and malali up there and um he uh uses the peppy sayer butter and so it's it's a really and i'm very conscious of not making a you know silk purse out of a sow's ear because it is a sausage roll but um it's a really um premium quality and hopefully will be really well received in that harris farm and sort of gourmet market yeah, beautiful. And for like anyone looking to diversify and do something like what you have, whichever sort of animal livestock they have, you've sort of, you are using the whole carcass, aren't you? Because that can be the most difficult thing is where to market the whole carcass. People love yeah, the ribs, the rump. Yeah. Um, we've been really it. lucky yep. with the, um, with the way, the numbers that we're doing. So it's, the ribs and the shanks like fit that existing markets or we've been able to grow those markets to fit the numbers that we're processing and it's all seems to be working out quite well like there was a stage where we were eating a lot of shanks at home <laughs> and um you know it was uh, and we did eat a lot of saddles as well for a while when covid kicked off and they weren't um cooking in the restaurants but yep. it was you know it's all um, the numbers are working really well. Our, my goal is to um, have access to our own on-farm processing or, you know, maybe in a parks with their um, inland hub, they want to do something there as well. So 
and really find a market for the skins and offal and, and that type of thing because I see a real opportunity there that I can't access at the moment because we don't control that end of it. Yeah, well, I think that's an exciting thing where you can branch out and sort of grow and further value add to get the most out of what your product is, raising some quality lamb here in the Central West, of course. For like other farmers, how important do you see diversifying your farm is? This is a big project for yourself, but do you think it should be encapsulated into everyone's farm? I think we all have to look at it. Like it's, you know, it's pretty, people are pretty, that are farming now are all pretty successful at it. You know, like they know what they're doing and, and, but it's hard to, the trick is imagining what it might look like in 10 or 20 years time and what yep. our market markets might be then. And um, I think that um, it's going to be everyone. I would like to see a scenario where we're paid for carbon production and, um, and that comes into our, you know, like if we're mixed farming with wheat, sheep and carbon. And yeah. I, I think that would be an ultimate win because how great would it to be being paid for something that you get to then reap the benefits from, from your animals eat, eating it and being able to produce really nourishing food and the best, you know, to be paid to um, improve your soils yeah. is, I think, totally. a, a, the ultimate and a really a win-win for everyone from the consumer through to like health department and a million like I just think it's really it would have such beneficial flow on effects and um and not just you know not just for people but for the planet like it would really work but yep. um you know we're a little way off that but it's uh, that's what I'd like to see and and I think for most of us if we do some you know early measurements and try to get um a bit of a uh, feel for where we're at with our existing carbon and where we can improve and do things and this was you know changing our breeding was one way that we thought we might be able to um, tweak that and um, and maybe run a a, a few more sheep uh, like put off hope what my goal is is to put off a similar amount of kilos but a different type of sheep than what we were producing before yeah great stuff for yourself like as you are doing this moves into my next question of like being paid as farmers for the carbon. What sort of yep. data are you collecting on farm? Are you collecting data on farm? <clears throat> so, so we just did um, a really simple project with a group out of Armadale called Farm Lab um, where they basically use, I don't know, magic and algorithms to and historical data to um, assess what your carbon levels are. And yep. um I think there's a, been a lot of research like out of University of New South Wales and um, and that sort of thing into historically how that works. And they're looking to get, you know, a lot more information, but it seemed the data we collected um, was very, you know, if you'd asked me what I thought our carbon levels were, I would have said, you know, 1.3, 1.4, you know, something like that, like a little bit better than average, but not nothing sensational like but really representative of our area and um and what's the better stuff well um you know 1.8 1.9 and what what can we go to and so we worked with farm lab to sort of do a big and we're getting over a little bit of country between all of us and so my dad and my husband and my sister and I so yep. we just measured over the whole lot to get a really good picture and 
Um, and there's definitely some room for improvement, um, but we're traditional mixed farming as well. So it's not, it's not e as easy as going all regen because we're still cropping and um, it's, you know, we're just doing maybe, we might plant out some more trees or do that type of stuff. We'll definitely fence off some um, dams and do a lot more watering. There's a, there's a lot of things that we can do that will have an impact on carbon and animals and pastures and all that sort of stuff. We'll have maybe a lot more um, exclusively pasture paddocks where we'll, you know, hopefully get some established, um, uh, you know, uh, You'll get some depth in your pastures. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely not a overnight success. Like it does take a few years to develop these pastures in order to have them well established that they're not going to get chewed out overnight as well. It can take 10, 20 years to really get that in there, get that seed bank growing. Exactly. It is, um, it is a big process and we're, you know, you would have been the same as us. The drought was um, pretty, you know, had <laughs> there was a lot of dirt blowing around. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I actually missed that though, because I was over in London. Um, oh. But yeah, my family <laughs> went all through it. So fortunately for me, I missed it. But now I'm just back into the good season now. But for yourself at Outback Lamb, what's your roadmap? You've discussed a little few little points, but where do you want to see it to go in the next 10 years? Well, I did, I set myself some goals this year because I, if you'd asked me previously, like what we were, I would have said, well, look, we're a slightly profitable side hustle. It's, um, so I set myself some goals this year to, um, you know, go big or go home. I want to sell a lot of sausage rolls and getting into retail and, and food service is a big part of that. And collaborating with um, Chris um, from This Is Us is definitely a big part of that as well. We've been We've got a great relationship with um, Ben, the baker out of Condo, and we'll continue to do the pies and everything with him. And it, that, it's all been amazing. But this next step is sort of, you know, essential for us in order to get where we want to go. And um, and I'd like to think that as I did a stint in Taiwan just pre-COVID and um, we did some early market research there with the MLA um, about... Uh, how pastry stuff might work in the Asian market. And I think there's some, probably some opportunities there, but I do struggle sort of with the idea of moving food a long way, but I, as Australians, we're all mass exporters. So I've just got to get over that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm really backing what you're doing. Um, I really think the lamb industry needs to one up themselves and give it to the beef industry, not like competing <laughs> with them, but just to put it at the front front of mind for the consumer we can have a lamb pie lamb sausage rolls everything like that where beef is absolutely the problem like with lamb it's really um it is and i always have to be highly apologetic i not try not to be apologetic about it it is a really premium product and you don't get a lot of um kilos of meat off a lamb carcass so it's important that you value that properly and the irony isn't lost on me that we are trying to step away from a commodity producer into an industry where suddenly I'm a commodity producer of sausage rolls because it is yeah. essentially the the key is um, is numbers because the um, the product is really expensive to make and it's you know it just that is what it is but there's so many 
opportunities in the meat industry, like um, even with lamb. And we all have to open our minds a little bit to the possibilities of um, collaborating and working with alternative protein people and, and all that sort of stuff, because there is going to be a massive demand for, like when we're all competing in the same space, but we should work together. Like yeah. That's what, what I'd like to do in the next 10 years is definitely do a, um, a combined lamb and alternative protein product and um, looking at you know, ways that we can feed a, a growing world population, but with, like, we don't have to, we know meat's a superior product. There's no question about it, but we can also um, work with our competitors to make a product that's really delicious as well. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that one. I'm backing it. But for anyone out there that wants to find a sausage roll, where can we find you? Sausage roll or any Outback land products? Well, very, very soon um, we'll be hopefully um, in retail. Uh, this will, you know, early September is the is the launch date. Um, and in the meantime, at the Condo um, Bakery in Condoblin. Yeah, uh, and he does a lot of orders and that sort of stuff for pie drives and all that sort of thing. So they, for you know, a great part of the Central West. So they certainly keep us busy. He punches out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pies every week. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's great to connect with your community as well, just to see where it can all go. And move, moving on, how how can someone find like an element within what you're doing and use it as a piece of farms advice? What would you give to someone as a piece of farms advice? Look, I would think, I think that in every farm, there's the opportunity to value add. Like I see it as a real... Um, a means of succession planning yep. um, for the next generations. Uh, I think that we've just got to not be afraid, you know, not be afraid to try new things. And certainly for us, we've been um, in our area, there's a lot of little soldier blocks, soldier settlers blocks, and we've been expanding and expanding and getting bigger. And, and that's what we thought we had to do. But now I think there's lots of other ways that you can, um, we've got a lot of acres and we don't have to, you know, farm intensively, but we can definitely achieve some value through um, some vertical investment in our properties. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a bit more about optimising and not scaling to ridiculous levels where you can't manage it correctly. If yeah. we can all optimise and bring our efficiencies up, the industry as a whole will improve as well. I think that's 100%. That's a really great way of saying it. Like it's optimising and just... Um, doing the very best you can with what you've got yeah and, um, and and remembering at the end of the day what we do like we're not producing a commodity we're producing food that nourishes people and um, and that's everything that we do is really geared towards that about making it you know as, as nourishing as it possibly can be yeah that's a great way to put it as long as we can be transparent is what I'm trying to push on the podcast with that but it's been great for you to come on and be transparent about what you're doing about back lamb and your journey. It's great to see you just around the corner. We'll have to pop in very soon to see what you're up to. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> but for anyone in the industry that you would think would be great for the Farms Advice podcast. Um, so I am always really interested in um, producers that are doing that value add kind of thing. So yep. when we did, um, uh, the three farmers freight little truck 
um, I worked with Angus Morris, who's got Farmer Brown's Happy Hens, and they're at Geary, and they basically, uh, on top of their existing farming enterprise, run, you know, a whole heap of hens and do the eggs and that type of thing. And um, so I think he'd be really interesting to talk to. Um, and another person that's doing a value add that um, I always watch with interest to see what they're doing is a girl called Pip Lawson. And she's out of South Australia and she's doing um, red lentil flour. And um, it's been really interesting as well. Uh, she's called the Pinaroo Farmer. Oh yeah, I have heard of her actually. Um, yeah, I think it's yeah. cool how we're starting to connect their own products and value add to them. Um, and a really exciting space looking in the next 10 years or so. It's great to have you. Don't you think, Yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt, I was going to say that uh, like Australia, we haven't been farming for very long. So I imagine that we will end up a little bit like France or Europe where, you know, regions will be recognised for certain stuff that they produce, like as we um, specialise and really um, fine-tune what we're doing and whether the Central West is for lambs and, you know, oranges for high-altitude wines and mudgies for red wines and, like, it, there's so much, um, you know, the Southern Highlands for cattle or, like, there's so many areas that can be really specialised to what they're, um, what they're growing. Yeah, definitely, and I think starting to connect the communities and what surrounds them as well is another exciting space where, the councils, I suppose, have a lot of work to do with connecting that as well. We're part of the cities that we surround as well. Um, so that's a great point as well. Yeah, just being part, really connected to your environment and knowing what's really well suited, you know, um, merino wool. And there's just so many great, I mean, we can grow anything in Australia because of the climate, but maybe the climate is going to come against us in, at some point. I don't know. Maybe you know, there may be tweaks that we can use to our advantage, but who knows? Yeah, but I'm, I'm sure Aussie farmers will be able to adapt and adopt to what's coming up, whether we can see it or we can't. Uh, it's been beautiful having you on today, Fiona. Thank you very much for coming on. How can we reach out to you, get in touch with you, um, maybe contact you? Yeah, just through the webpage, um, yep. outbacklamb.com.au um, or... Uh, they I use social media quite as a bit as well so we're on I mainly hang out on Instagram but I love um, LinkedIn and Twitter as well beautiful thank you very much if you're keen to get in touch with Outback Land and tune in for some sausage rolls very soon yeah, how exciting <laughs> thanks for tuning in to episode 58 with myself and Fiona from Outback Land and to Fiona, thank you for your time and being so transparent into what you do at your own operation and passing on some information for other farmers out there to see if they can implement it. If you take something away from this episode, make sure you act today. Today is the best time to take action for your own enterprise and use it as motivation to drive your agribusiness. If you did like this episode, please share it on your social media accounts or even mail it to your pen pal. Help us grow and support Australian farmers to become the best they can be just like Fiona and the team. It really helps us to reach more farmers out there but we've got 314,000 more to go to reach our goal. Until next Tuesday, keep on farming. Thanks for sticking around right to the end of this episode. If you'd like to become a part of the Farms Wise community, 
Search for Farms Vice Australia on Facebook groups. Connect with others within the industry and become a part of an innovative farmers group. Pushing the dial to make agribusiness better. See you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.